0: It's the Bits and Pieces Podcast.
1: Hello and welcome to the December 2022 Bits and Pieces Podcast. I'm Fiona McGregor from the Indie Life Podcast team. And this is our final roundup of topical clips for 2022. So we've got something very special at the end from the Indie Choir. And we're going to start this month with a flavour from the Time for Scotland rally organised by Lesley Riddick on the day we got the decision from the Supreme Court case hearing. This
2: is the Time for Scotland rally because it's time for Scotland to show that it will not accept being denied a chance to decide its future. We are, we are not here to criticise judges. That is a speciality of Tory Prime Ministers. We are also accepting the Supreme Court judgment, something that the last two Prime Ministers refused to do. But we are saying it is ridiculous we have been in a situation and we are in it now where the Scotland Act provides a simple means to resolve this, which is to give Section 30 powers to this parliament. Why the heck is that not happening now? So we've had a setback today with the the Supreme Court making clear what we already knew. And the world sees it now crystal clear. We are not in a union of equals we are not in a voluntary union and to that degree we are not in a democracy so we are here tonight to make a really very important point which is that whilst the politicians the Supreme Court judges the commentators the media and everyone else has their say politics is about the passion of people the belief of people And you show that tonight, you dancers, by coming here. But not just here. Before we have our first speaker, let me just say hello to our Indie Live uh, live streams, which means most of the rest of Europe watching. Uh, We have six demonstrations happening right now across Europe, Uh, from Rome at the Colosseum to the Doyle in Ireland, Berlin, Munich, Paris. have rallies going on as you know i don't think i can even keep the list in my head because every couple of minutes it has increased but you know we have Glasgow we have Stirling we have Dundee we have Perth we have Inverurie Aberdeen Inverness Portree Kirkwall Loch Gilphead Dumfries and i've forgotten some so say hello to them comrades they're launching too
1: All these rallies and coordinated events were organised by a tiny team, which was essentially Leslie plus a couple of other people and the Yes for EU group, I think it was, who coordinated the European events, which was fabulous. Um, and they all at the same time read out a declaration of support for Scotland. So at the Holyrood event, which is where I was, the speaker was Frenchwoman
2: Elise Talleyrand. Yeah.
3: As said I am um, a proud Frenchwoman, born and brought up in Normandy in the northwest of France. I am also a very proud Scot, having lived in Scotland for close to 30 years and um, having had citizenship uh, dual citizenship for the about half of that time. And I also stand here as a proud European. Uh, who benefited from the EU's uh, freedom of movement policy and other policies and um, without which, to be frank, my life as I know it today uh, would, you know, my work, my friends, my family wouldn't actually exist. So I'm a big fan of the EU and that's why I brought my little star here that's shining for Scotland to rejoin the EU. Um, So tonight I'm going to read a statement from the campaign group Europe for Scotland. Scottish friends, today is a sad day for Scotland and all Europeans who believe in democracy. This morning the UK Supreme Court certified that the UK's unwritten constitution does not allow the Scottish Parliament to fulfil the democratic mandate from the Scottish people for a new independence referendum. Whilst the UK government with it, Withholds its permission, Scotland is trapped in constitutional limbo, stuck in a supposed voluntary union against its democratic will. We all know that the United Kingdom is all but united. For decades, Scotland and England have been on divergent political paths with radically different ideas for their future. It was England that voted for Margaret Thatcher, David Cameron and Boris Johnson. Scotland not only rejected each and every one of them, but in fact didn't vote for any of the last 10 Tory prime ministers. It was England that voted narrowly to leave the European Union. Scotland never wanted to leave and voted overwhelmingly to remain. It is England that would like to be global Britain. All Scotland wants is to be in charge of its own destiny and not become collateral damage for England's terrible choices. How many more Tory Prime Ministers should be inflicted on Scotland against its democratic will? How many more years should Scotland's businesses suffer because of Brexit? How many more generations of young Scots should be deprived of the Erasmus program and opportunities to freely travel and work in Europe? How much longer should Scots be denied their democratic right to choose their own future? Scots deserve the same rights and opportunities that we Europeans enjoy. And that's why I am here today, to express our European solidarity and to tell Scots We stand with you. Tonight, my friends from Europe for Scotland are gathered in solidarity in six European cities. They are showing their support in Berlin, Rome, Dublin, Paris, Munich and Brussels. Tomorrow, they'll also be gathering in Denmark. Our message is simple, Scots are not alone. Europeans support Scotland's democratic right to choose its own future. And Europeans would love to welcome our Scottish friends back into our European family and build a better Europe together.
1: Like Independence Live, like the Indie Live podcast team, The Time for Scotland event was not party political and there were representatives on the stage from all the main indie-supporting political parties, apart from the Scottish Greens for some reason. But this next speaker is a man I I always think is a great speaker and I always enjoy listening to him. It's Colin Fox from the Scottish Socialist Party.
4: I'm proud to stand here alongside you tonight. This is a day when supporters of independence have got to be standing up and be counted. And the Scottish Socialist Party is proud to say we've been supporting independence for 25 years now. We'll continue to support independence until we achieve our goal, which is an independent socialist Scotland, a modern democratic republic. Brothers and sisters, there's a scene in the very first Pirates of the Caribbean blockbuster, I'm sure you watched it. Well, the Royal Navy Commodore says to Captain Jack Sparrow, you are without doubt the worst pirate I have ever heard of. And Jack Sparrow, as you know if you've seen the film, replies malignantly, yes, but you have heard of me. And I'm bound to say that scene came to mind today when I was listening to Lord Reid at 9.45 this morning. For whilst the defeat that he announced is a defeat for those who thought there was a parliamentary road to independence, because there isn't, at the same time it makes clear we won't get a Section 30 order, we won't get a second referendum, nor our independence, unless we have majority support, and that remains our objective here today and every day. And Lord Reed unwittingly perhaps, made it clear to the independence movement that independence will not be achieved via parliaments at Westminster or Holyrood. It won't be achieved via conservative law courts like his, those representatives of the British state. And nor will it be achieved by conservative politicians who argue that independence is about changing as little as possible about keeping the pound, keeping the king, keeping NATO, remaining in the EU, letting the money men continue to tell us that nothing can be done about fuel poverty or child poverty in that Scotland. We reject that attitude. Independence is about change it's nothing at all. It's about transforming Scotland into a better country than we see round about us today. That is the only strategy that will prevail. And today, brothers and sisters, could be a historic day if it's the day that independent supporters realise that we need a better strategy than this one if we're going to defeat the forces of the British state who bar our way. So what do we need to win from here? First of all, we need a majority. We need a majority for independence, and we don't have it yet. And that remains a challenge that we must rise, to and succeed. Every single one of us here. Every single one at the rallies across the length and breadth of Scotland. Every independent supporter across Scotland. And we need a persuasive economic case for independence that convinces working people that they'll be better off with independence. And we don't have that yet either. And we need a better strategy than we have at the minute. So my final message to you today at this rally, we need to convene, brothers and sisters, a new Scottish independence convention where we invite all those who realise there is no parliamentary road to independence and we have to secure that majority and then prepare for an extra parliamentary campaign. So I'm looking forward to that new Scottish independence convention meeting in Edinburgh next year to see how we get that majority and how we can prepare a successful strategy for securing our independence. What about you? Are you up for that? Well, if you are, and I hope you are, then you can come and see me tomorrow morning on the CW picket line. You can come and see me here tomorrow afternoon at this very spot where I'll be alongside the EIS teachers and preserve their just pay claim. And if you can't make these two picket lines, you can see me at my regular surgery on Princess Street 12 till 2, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday and Saturday. Forward, onwards to independence.
1: Now you might have been able to hear there a tiny bit in the background, a loud hailer, which was the man that we call Mankey Jacket. He always wears a fairly filthy-looking Union Jack shirt and he has made it his job to turn up at most of the big rallies and events with a loud hailer and a group of about three or four other people. Um, we've also heard sometimes he recruits people from pubs to stand there and hold a, a flag for a tenor and they scream through the loud hailer, Westminster's in charge, you lost, go home, you losers, that kind of thing. On the face of it, the Supreme Court case, you could argue that, it, that we had lost it, because we didn't get what we wanted out of it. But our side of the street... People were laughing, people were cheering, people were listening to speakers, sharing in the occasion, having a good time. Whereas on the other side of the road, a tiny bedraggled band shouting hate. I mean, if that is the vision of the union that they want to portray, they're actually pretty uh, helpful to our cause. But don't let them know that. Next time I'm at an event that they're there I will make a point of recording them and we can maybe have a closer look at just what this um, union of equals and this precious union sounds like up close. Now let's head on down to Westminster where the redoubtable Dr Philippa Whitford has a question for Rishi Sunak. Thank you very much
5: Mr Speaker. Yesterday the United Kingdom in its current form turned a hundred years old but neither the Prime Minister nor the leader of the Labour Party seem to recognise the challenge of the Supreme Court ruling as to the very nature of the union. He did not answer me two weeks ago, so can the Prime Minister clarify if he still believes the UK is a voluntary union, and if so, can he explain the democratic route by which the people of Scotland can choose whether to stay in
2: it or not?
1: The Prime Minister adopted his best deer-in-the-headlights stare, panicked, ruffled through his folder, and this is the best he could come up with.
0: Well, Mr Speaker, we fully respect the decision of the Supreme Court and believe strongly in the United Kingdom. And as I said to the Honourable Lady last time, we will work constructively with the Scottish Government to deliver for the people of Scotland.
1: And before I point out rather meanly that Sunak has now been in post as Prime Minister longer than liability Liz Truss, the SNP had also had a change of leadership with Ian Blackford stepping down as Westminster leader after five years in the role and new boy Stephen Flynn stepping up. now. Regular listeners of this podcast will know that Marlene and I have been fans of Stephen Flynn for quite a while. He's a very good speaker. He speaks without notes. He knows his stuff and he manages to look them in the eye and and convey a sense of menace, (laughs) which makes quite a change from the courteous and gentle Ian Blackford. So this is Stephen Flynn's first outing at PMQs. Let's see how he gets on.
6: Thank you, Mr Speaker. I wish to begin by paying tribute to my friend and colleague, the Right Honourable Member for Ross Skye and Loch Abber, who has served us with diligence and duty for the last five years. Mr Speaker, he is a giant of the Scottish independence movement. Mr Speaker, he's seen off, not one, not two, but three consecutive Tory Prime Ministers. Indeed, he was on to his fourth in recent weeks. And to that latest Prime Minister, I have a very simple question. What does he consider to be the greatest achievement of the Conservative Party in government since 2019? Leaving the Single Market and Customs Union? Ending freedom of movement? Denying Scotland her democracy? Or getting the Labour Party to agree with all of the above? <laughs> Mr Speaker,
0: can I start by offering my genuine and warm, heartfelt best wishes to the Right Honourable Member for Ross Guy and Lochaber? I know, I know the whole House will miss his weekly contributions. Um, and and, may, and may, I, may I also congratulate or join the First Minister in congratulating the Honourable Gentleman on his appointment as a Westminster leader of the SNP. I look forward to a constructive debate uh, with him across the dispatch box. And, Mr Speaker, the answer to his question is actually very simple. The things that we are most proud of in the last couple of years is making sure that we protected this country through the pandemic with,
6: with furlough and with the fastest vaccine. Scene out. Yeah. Mr. Speaker, far be it for me to offer advice to a near-billionaire, but he's going to have to up his game. And here's why. Because in the last 15 minutes, a poll has landed which shows that support for Scottish independence has now hit 56%. And support, and support for the Scottish National Party sits north of 50%. So in that context, can I ask the Prime Minister, Does he consider that increasing energy bills on households in energy-rich Scotland by a further £500 will cause those poll numbers to rise or to fall?
0: Mr Speaker, what we're delivering for households across the United Kingdom, including those in Scotland, is £55 billion of support with energy bills. It will save a typical homeowner about £900 under their bills this winter with extra support for the most vulnerable. And that is, Mr Speaker, an example of the United Kingdom and the Union delivering for people in Scotland.
1: So there we have it, another non-answer from a weak and flimsy Prime Minister who just doesn't get it. And he demonstrated that quite clearly when he, this week, when he admitted that the word British was just shorthand for English, which I'm sure went down as well in Wales and Northern Ireland as it did in Scotland. Now, Stephen Flynn probably couldn't believe his luck when 15 minutes before he rose to speak on his first ever PMQs, he got a poll saying that support for independence was at 56%. Um, Since then, however, we have had six polls in a row showing support for independence in the majority. Uh, Pollster John Curtis has said that he thinks this is a genuine shift in opinion. So it does seem as if the Supreme Court judgment has galvanised the Yes movement a little and also encouraged some perhaps soft-nose to think about who they want running their country. Aileen McHarg is a constitutional lawyer based at the University of Durham and she took part in an event with, yes, Glasgow Southside where they were discussing the implications of the court ruling and one of the points she made was that the ruling confirmed Holyrood didn't have the power under the Scotland Act to hold a referendum but that the Scotland Act can be amended. So newly new Stephen Flynn and the SNP... Decided to test that theory straight away with another Opposition Day debate, this time into the future for Scotland. If this is no longer a voluntary union, how do we leave? Now we're going to devote a whole show in January to exactly that question. But just for the moment, here are some short clips from that debate that will set the tone.
7: All we're asking is that this place recognises that Scotland has a democratic right to decide its own future. And if this Parliament won't allow it, then the least it should do is allow our Parliament to do it. Yeah. And what this motion seeks to do is simply amend the 1998 Scotland Act to give the Scottish Parliament the power to hold that
0: referendum that the people elected their government to deliver. Uh, given the Prime Minister couldn't tell us, uh, perhaps the Minister, or indeed the Shadow Secretary of State, um, can explain to us how Scotland or Wales can leave this voluntary union what is the route map to democracy yep. Yep. how can we get it give, um, I'll give way to well I don't know
6: where the honourable member has been but if you listened, if you cared if the honourable member listened to my speech, my opening speech um, earlier this afternoon it was very clear the mechanism by which there could be a a second referendum. In that we experienced it in twenty eleven there was consensus between both parliaments, between Civic Scotland and all the political parties. That consensus is not currently here. Just to be clear then and
0: I can intervene again if I'm if I'm wrong, essentially the only thing missing everything else is in place essentially, if you look at the situation in Scotland, the votes in the last twenty twenty-one Parliament in place, the role of Civic Scotland, the only bit that's missing is a consensus. Of this government and this parliament. Is that correct? Would you like to correct me? Or is, that, is that correct? Oh, oh no. So maybe in his summing up, he'll, he'll so confirm that, that that's the case. So you're vetoing Scotland's right to democracy. Yes, yes,
8: yes. yes. You know,
0: yes.
7: How, easy, how easy does he think that would be given the EU's stubborn attitude towards Catalan claims and their support of oh, Spain resisting yeah, 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 yeah. even a referendum?
0: Yeah, yeah. So well,
7: The the difference, of course, between the EU and the United Kingdom is that Scotland's able to leave one but not the other. Uh, I I, I imagine how the right honourable gentleman might have felt uh, if he and his Brexit colleagues were wishing for Britain to leave the EU. were told, well, you simply can't do that. You have no right to do that. That is the situation that is now being presented to Scotland with regard to the UK.
1: There are signs that the other devolved nations have been keeping a close eye on what's happening at the Supreme Court. Northern Ireland, of course, has a a special position because of the Good Friday Agreement and actually has written into that agreement that that they can have a border poll in every seven years. But Wales has no such guarantees. Here's Plaid Cymru's Liz Savile-Roberts giving us a Welsh perspective.
5: Welcome the opportunity to discuss this important matter today and fully support the motion in the name of the SNP, as well as the principle that Scotland should be given the right to decide when an independence referendum should be called. Westminster's refusal to guarantee the right to self-determination for all the devolved nations demonstrates the fundamentally undemocratic and therefore broken nature of this union. It exposes the well-worn narrative that this is a voluntary association of four nations which somehow, somehow choose to pool sovereignty as the flagrant falsehood. Which it truly is. There's no doubt that this UK is a UK government who are politically, openly hostile to devolution. They have consistently disregarded the Sewell Convention, rendering this supposed constitution protection almost meaningless. They have shut out the devolved governments uh, from key d- economic decision making relating to post Brexit funding and are more than happy to ignore Welsh Government's warnings that their trade deals will devastate key Welsh industries in their pursuit of glossy headlines. One of the things that is striking in the responses that we have from either of the major Westminster parties is the sheer lack of a convincing, gripping, emotionally valid Economically rational (laughs) argument in favour of the union. Time and again we hear these remarks, but in all honesty, the fact that, that this is politicised in the sense that we are talking about health in relation to England, health in relation to Scotland, if actually there was proper respect for devolution, this wouldn't be an economic, this wouldn't be a political football. This would be something that we would actually have the proper means within our devolved nations to answer those problems for the powers that were given to us twenty odd years ago, but we don 't, and that in all honesty, when that argument is thrown at us that we should be looking after the day to day the bread and butter matters, those are fa- i will in a moment those are fair points, but the real point is we do not have the powers with which to sort those problems which are left with us under the influence of this government from this place.
1: Speaking of Wales, Marlene Halliday and I were delighted to be guests on the podcast which Sean Jobbins of Yes Cymru hosts. We really enjoyed chatting to Sean and you'll be able to listen to that conversation on our normal Friday podcast on the 13th of January or you can watch it on Yes Cymru's YouTube channel. You're listening to
0: Bits and Pieces.
1: We've called this next section Points of Order. Lib Dem leader Alex Cole-Hamilton at Holyrood thought he'd come up with a real killer fact from the totally unbiased right-wing unionist think tank these islands about a claim which we've all made I'm sure over the last few years that Scotland has 25% of Europe's renewable potential. Now potential by its very nature you would think is difficult to be exact when you're quantifying it. Whether it's 25%, whether it's 15%, whether it's 50 the point remains that Scotland is an energy-rich country with huge potential. But he would not let it go. He was like a dog with a bone and repeatedly raised the same point of order. Alpa. MP Kenny McCaskill was particularly good at putting him back in his box in a debate about the UK's trade strategy, or lack of it. Uh, in this
7: debate on the industrial future, I wish to deal with renewables and in particular offshore wind. Now, there has been some mention in the debate earlier and indeed we've seen it in the press that the statistic that scotland had 25 percent of europe's potential offshore wind is incorrect i'm happy to concede that although i'm surprised that it's being pilloried upon the scottish government because it was also a statistic echoed by the uk government including ministers and even a deputy uh, prime minister uh, but i move that i accept that technology changes but what remains the case is that it is huge and it is significant and I'm not prepared to accept the prognosis put forward by unionist front organisations or other organisations funded by rich men with an agenda. This remains big because I also remember when Scotland's first bounty came about in oil and gas. As a child of the 60s I recall being told that oil would all be gone by the 80s. Then it would be gone by the millennium. When we got to the referendum in 2014 it was nearly gone and it was an impediment how could a sco- country like Scotland possibly survive as an independent nation if it had to put up with the difficulty of looking after its depleted oil and gas sector? Now we find that the rush to uh, government licences is taking place at an excessive pace. So it's huge. Even the former Prime Minister Boris Johnson described it as the Saudi Arabia of wind. I have to say if Scotland can do from wind what Saudi Arabia is down from oil, I'll be very, very qu- happy. But. It's a huge potential because Berwick Bank alone provides more electricity for domestic supply than Scotland has in households, that shows the potential. But to do it, what we have to ensure is that the state has control, or at least a stake, that local businesses get actually the contracts and indeed that local workers get the jobs. And in looking at that, I want to look at one particular offshore wind farm because in each and every one of those areas we are failing and the government has failed. What we have to look at is the wind farm at near Nagy. It's a Gaelic name, and Hansard will get the spelling from me uh, later. But let's where it is. It's situ- situated 15 kilometres from the coast of Fife, 20 miles to my own constituency, East Lothian, where the cabling will land. Now let's look at the ownership. Who owns it? EDF and EBS. Who are they? One, the state producer of power for France and the others the Electricity Board from the Republic of Ireland. The profits from this wind farm, that's 54 turbines providing 370,000 households of electricity, are going not to Edinburgh or London, they're going to Paris and Dublin. That is ridiculous and at minimum a state should be taken by the Scottish Government or the UK Government. But what about the contracts? Well the contracts for the 54 turbines are going to Hull. They're certainly not going to meth where Bifab lines lies empty, or Arnish up, It also lies empty. I don't begrudge the work going to Hull, but 54 is more turbines that are being committed or produced in Scotland at all. And that's simply unacceptable. Every estuary in Scotland, every yard, should be producing these turbines because the requirement is there, and yet we're getting contracts that you'll be able to count in your hands and your feet, and it's simply unacceptable. The other contracts are likewise going abroad, to Belgium, to Spain, to Norway. But what about the jobs? And I did listen to the honourable member earlier going on about jobs going abroad. But at this very moment, workers in the near Nagyouth near field, who are operating on Solstad's ship, the uh, Norman Navigator, they are getting the redundancy notice, because there's been an extension of the offshore workers' immigration rules. And as a consequence of that, These employers are laying off UK seafarers. 36 so far and more may happen in other fields. 36 are being laid off and replaced by cheap South Asian labour. That is simply disgraceful. We're not getting the contracts for Scottish business and the workforce, whether based in Scotland or indeed elsewhere in the United Kingdom, are getting redundancy notices. Many of them took these jobs because it was an opportunity to work closer to home. We'll be able, in my constituency, to see the turbines turning. Yet many in their homes won't be able to meet the bills, despite the fact that the energy should be available cheap, not priced at the rate of European gas.
1: Back at Holyrood, there was a debate on public health. And Marie Todd, Minister for Public Health, did well to keep her cool in the face of increasingly tetchy and sometimes downright aggressive interventions from the Tory party. And as you can hear, passions were running high. I want to start by thanking members for contributing to
9: what's been a lively debate on an issue that I know that we all deeply care about. I've stressed in previous debates and sessions that this parliament needs to be a public health parliament, where all parties come together to work jointly to tackle the key challenges for population health and wellbeing in Scotland. And I view the committee's inquiry and this debate as an important step in that process. Only by combining and strengthening our efforts will we be able to reverse the worrying trends in life expectancy and reduce health inequalities in Scotland. I will give way. Craig Hoy.
6: I thank the Minister for reaching out and saying that across this uh, Parliament we should all be focusing on policies. Does she therefore share uh, my regret, and no doubt the regret of those watching at home, that uh, a succession of her own backbenchers decided to get up and talk about policy uh, rather than process? And does she not see that this constitutional smokescreen is wearing thin and hiding the SNP's failures?
5: Minister. No,
9: I don't agree at all. I have to say I find your tone during this debate, the member's tone during this debate, frankly astonishing. It's austerity denying. We've had evidence from academics in Scotland most recently, but right across the UK that have laid absolutely bear the fact that those political choices made by the coalition government of the Conservatives on one side and the Lib Dems on the other in 2010 had the most devastating impact on our population in Scotland. And not only... Not only did it have a devastating impact immediately on our most vulnerable citizens, which I witnessed when I was working as a mental health pharmacist with people with severe and enduring mental illness, it is still having an impact. Life-shortening policies brought to us by the Tories and the Lib Dems and complete denial from that side of the chamber today. We all acknowledge the impact of the pandemic. It has both shone a light on pre-existing inequalities and it has exacerbated them. It is my belief now that the scales have fallen from Scotland's eyes. We will not tolerate this injustice any longer. Poverty is the driver of health inequalities. Health inequalities, like other inequalities, are about an inequality in power, wealth and status. Yes, I will take an intervention. Finley Carson.
7: Thank you for taking the intervention. Well, maybe the Minister would comment on the inequalities that have been overseen by the SNP over the years. Inequality when it comes to rural health, the closure of our cottage hospitals, and the downgrading of our maternity units that see people giving birth on the side of the road. That's your problem. That's your responsibility.
9: Perhaps somebody on the Conservative benches would like to explain... Why they supported the UK mini-budget which wiped $64 billion off our economy in one day. If what you are asking me collectively is do I think we could have spent that money better in the Scottish Government or in an independent Scotland, absolutely the answer is yes. Let me tell you about what we are doing in the Scottish Government to tackle child poverty as Fiona Hislop so eloquently set out the appalling, lifelong impact that poverty has on our children. In this financial year alone, we've allocated almost £3 billion through a range of measures which will help to mitigate the impact of the cost of living crisis on households. That includes supporting energy bills, childcare, health, travel, as well as social security payments that are neither available elsewhere in the UK or are more generous than elsewhere in the UK, such as the Scottish Child Payment and the Bridging Payment. The Scottish Child Payment has been further expanded to eligible 6 to 15-year-olds and increased in value to £25 per child per week, and around 400,000 children are potentially eligible. Now, all the Conservatives said they wanted to hear what the Scottish Government is doing to tackle poverty. I am setting out what we are doing to tackle poverty. In addition, we are supporting families in a variety of other ways, including massively expanding the provision of fully funded, high quality early learning and childcare, free bus travel for under-22s, free school meals to around 145,000 pupils and the child winter heating assistance. But let's listen to what the Child Poverty Action Group report notes. Scottish policies are making a major contribution to helping families over the cost of bringing up children, yet many of the factors causing families to risk deep poverty in the coming months and years are well beyond the Scottish Government's control. We will continue to urge the UK Government to use all of the powers at its disposal to tackle the cost of living crisis on the scale that 's required, including access to borrowing, providing benefits, and so no, I will not take another ven- intervention from the conservative benches they are simply austerity denying uh, and they are absolutely uh, refusing to listen to what the Scottish government is doing to tackle poverty your
10: best with
9: certainly
5: Thank you Minister Claire
1: Adamson does the minister agree with United Nations poverty expert Philip Alston, who's has compared the Conservative Party welfare policies to the creation of 19th century workhouses and word that unless
5: austerity ended the UK's poorest people will face lives that are solitary, poor, nasty British and short Minister Absolutely,
9: couldn't agree more and we have seen a number of times where the UK government has had an opportunity to tackle poverty by increasing wealth and increasing welfare increasing the um, pay that is given, that that is earned by working parents and instead it has taken the opportunity to punish poor people further. We have, yes, certainly. Carol Mockin. Thank you. I thank the Minister for taking an intervention Um, and she knows that we have a lot of agreement in, in this place but what I would like to ask given that you've just agreed to what extent people are living in and will the government agree to do absolutely everything that they can to make sure that people do not continue to live like this. And will they take into account, and I hope it comes up in the Budget tomorrow, some of the levers that the
1: STUC have put forward that they could use. In conclusion, Minister.
9: Absolutely. Our budget will be set out tomorrow by John Swinney, and I know how carefully he is considering the suggestions put forward by the STUC. But let me reiterate again, everything that we are doing, we are doing with both hands tied behind our backs. Every additional percentage point on a pay deal... Every pound that we spend on measures to deal with rising costs has to be funded from reductions elsewhere, given our largely fixed budget and our limited fiscal powers. Scotland is once again at the mercy of UK government decisions. And that, to me, and to many in this chamber, and to many in this country, in this nation, absolutely reinforces the urgent need for independence.
1: And then finally, we were treated to an absolute masterclass in using points of order to delay and disrupt proceedings in the two days that were devoted to the amendments to the Gender Recognition Reform Act. Not only was the session some two hours late in even getting started, they carried on until midnight. Now given it was the Tory party who were doing all the delaying and calling all the points of order, I'm not sure if it was choreographed or not, but there were several other points of order from Tory members making the point that people with caring responsibilities, people who had carers, were experiencing severe difficulty because of these tactics. I have up until now been on the side of those who wish SNP and ALPA down at Westminster would create a bit more trouble, would start being difficult, would start disrupting proceedings as a way of calling attention to the fact that our democracy is being denied. And yet, my response to the Tories doing exactly that was that it made them look hypocritical It made them look disingenuous. It made them look as if they were disrupting parliamentary business to pursue their own political agenda, which is an interesting kind of through the looking glass moment. And I'm now not sure whether I want our troops down at Westminster to do the same thing, although I have to say it was effective in disrupting it. But at the end of the day, the debate still happened and the bill went through. So, Not sure on the tactics on that now. We'll have to see what the SNP and ALPA MPs down at Westminster make of it and if they decide to do similar. Now, there is no doubt that the Gender Recognition Act debate has been extremely polarising, has been at times really toxic. And sometimes I think I might be one of the few people in Scotland who actually didn't have very strong opinions one way or the other on it. I certainly was quite put off by the extremes on both ends of the spectrum, but there was thoughtful and respectful debate somewhere in the middle. And the speech I found the most compelling came from Pam Duncan Glancy.
11: I became an MSP because I wanted to change people's lives. Today is one of those rare moments as an MSP where we all have a real opportunity to improve lives and directly tackle inequality. Presiding Officer, being recognised for who you are without suspicion is hard. Being expected to rely on medical interference where it isn't needed or wanted to somehow prove who you are, who you know you are, is demeaning and hurtful. And requiring someone else, who doesn't even know you, to confirm your identity is belittling. The pressure to conform to a society that doesn't quite understand your experience is hard. It's exhausting. It means you second-guess your instincts. You worry that people think you shouldn't be how you are or get what you get. You feel a need to justify who you are in a way that people that don't share your characteristics don't have to. As a disabled person, I'm only too familiar with this world and that experience. I guess that's why I've always felt a connection with trans people's desire to be recognised for who they are and for the current process for doing that to be reformed. For society to accept them and to support them to be their best self without barriers, additional costs or medicalisation. The thing about stigma and discrimination is that the characteristics of it are almost always the same. Regardless of your own characteristics as a disabled person, an older person, a woman, a person of colour, a lesbian, a gay person or a trans person, you're held back, you're questioned, you lose out, you earn less, people treat you differently. You internalise this, you agonise over every microaggression and ultimately it eats away your sense of self and purpose and potential. That's why I believe strongly that the reform we will vote for today has been a long time coming, and why changing the current onerous, lengthy and invasive process of legal gender recognition has always been so important to me. The current system is outdated and out of touch with the progressive Scotland we aim to be. It forces trans people to endure trauma and intrusion just to have their gender recognised in law. I have said many times throughout the scrutiny of this bill that I believe the drawn-out process, the delays by the Scottish Government in bringing it forward and its failure to provide strong leadership necessary to quash misconceptions and allay fears has led to a vacuum which has allowed fear and ignorance to prosper. It has led to a debate that has framed the rights of trans people as a threat to the rights of women and created a toxic environment that has let down both causes and brought hurt and upset to those who spend their lives fighting for both of them. We are here having this discussion because there is a clear injustice and we have the power to fix it. That is what devolution is for. In all the evidence I have heard, and I have heard a lot of it, it has been clear to me that too many trans people feel the current process for being recognised in law as the gender they identify with is not possible. The current system is so bad, too often trans people are forced to leave themselves open to discrimination in all aspects of their life facing constant fear of being outed, treated differently because their identity documents are not consistent in their lived experience. Officer, that's why I've been so keen to make sure that this legislation is the best it can be. I cannot understate the importance of getting that right. It has to do what it says on the tin, tear down some of the most disproportionate barriers that are tra- denying trans people the dignity of being recognised for who they are. It's why we on these benches have spent so much time scrutinising it and why we have done so thoroughly. We have recognised that concerns exist on single-sex spaces, on age, on the potential abuse of the process and we have spent hours looking at the evidence in detail, debating the arguments coming up with solutions. We have met with representatives of trans people, women and young people, human rights experts, gender gender identity experts, data experts, member of parliaments in other countries that have legislated on this academics, faith leaders, people with lived experience of transition and detransition, sporting bodies, legal experts, campaign groups and individuals across the entire spectrum of this bill. We've listened to concerns and sought the best possible evidence available to us on all of them in areas where we think the bill needed improved, such as on the collection of robust data, the clarity of statutory declarations, clarification on the primacy of the Equality Act and the protection of single-sex spaces, the importance of support and guidance and inclusion of asylum seekers, protections against vexatious allegations, reviews of the impact of the new system, we laid amendments and we worked with others across the Chamber to secure improvements to the Bill to ensure that today, as we move to vote on it in its final form, we are able to vote to deliver the change that trans people need and deserve, ensuring their dignity and recognition in law, whilst also ensuring the process is one that the public can have confidence in. President Officer, trans people have been waiting waiting far too long for these changes. They deserve nothing less than good legislation that allows them to be recognised for who they are. That is why Scottish Labour were determined to ensure the bill did just that, to ensure it meets its objectives and delivers the change needed. Officer, in closing, trans rights are human rights. They are inalienable, indivisible and interdependent. Human rights are our rights not because we are women, or trans, or gay, or disabled, or black, but because we are human and a society and a parliament have a legal obligation to uphold them. For trans people being recognised in law for who you are, is fundamental to this. In committee and throughout my equality and human rights campaigning, I have heard, and I am in no doubt, that the process to do this is dehumanising, intrusive, offensive, expensive and lengthy and must change. I, and Scottish Labour, will therefore be voting for this bill today.
1: You're listening to Bits and Pieces. for the final section of our podcast today which will be going out on the 30th of December the second last day of 2022 we want to just bring a little bit of festive cheer and recognition that it is the Christmas and New Year season Dame Angela Eagle at Westminster had a particular request for Santa
8: you yeah
5: this year the Tory party has given us five education secretaries four chancellors, three prime ministers two the leadership the coups and, the, and Mr. Speaker the partridges have to sell the pear tree to pay the <laughs> gas very good Mr. Speaker, isn't it the case that after a year of Tory chaos, incompetence and self-indulgence, the best Christmas present the Prime Minister could give to the British people is a general yeah! Election? Yeah!
1: This month, I was at two book launches, one for Business for Scotland, coming out with the second edition of their book, Scotland the Brief. The second was Commonweal, with their book called simply Sorted both available from their respective websites. I'll put the link in the notes. Both were excellent events, very positive and a real testament to the breadth and grassroots cross-party nature, all party and none, of the independence movement. Speeches from the Commonweal launch is going to be our first podcast of 2023. And we chose the timing because we thought it was particularly uplifting and positive. And here is just a little clip from Robin McAlpine to give you flavour.
10: It's the joy of working for Commonweal is we're like a a self-generating happiness machine on a good day and we just decided that's what we're going to do we're just going to deal with it if things are miserable let us not be so we sat down and we planned it we worked out what this was going to be what was going to be in this book and we decided that we'd cover so much let's just explain it all let's just do everything because we're nothing if not psychotic eh, ambitious and we'll just try and see if we can do the whole thing and we big holes. So we've got, we've got Andy down from our health group, all the way down from Sky, one of our, two of our people in our health group are from Sky. they been amazing. And we started from scratch and we are doing weekly meetings. And oh my God, what I've learned, what I, what I picked up from this. And this is the first really happy, positive message that I want to see, which is we didn't spend anything producing this book. Ticket to London here and there, a couple of, a couple of rail journeys and the electricity runs on Zoom. We just drew in the talent that already exists in Scotland, and incidentally, not just Scotland. So for example, one of the people who really helped us this was Richard Murphy. There is lots of goodwill out there for a country that wants to do something good. We can draw in that goodwill, but we don't have to go abroad. We don't have to go out of our own, our own territory. Scotland is so filled with talent, so filled with capability, so filled with knowledge and expertise, We just need to get a politics and a society that harnesses it rather than rejecting it. And all I can say is I don't think we've got anyone, sadly, from the care team here, but if only the expertise that we've got in that team and the expertise that they drew on was what was shaping the Scottish Government's National Care Service, we'd be getting a National Care Service to be excited about rather than, frankly, about uh, feeling afraid of. this is the first thing i want to see is we have got what we need in this country in terms of the people who can make things
1: happen i'm recording this on christmas eve and my copy of sorted is wrapped and under the christmas tree and i have to say i can't wait to get in about it tomorrow now i promised you a treat from the indie choir This is a recording that Mike Fennick did from just one of the rehearsals. So it's not the finished version and there's somebody standing a wee bit too close to the microphone so you can hear a little bit of breathing here and there. But having said that, I thought it was delightful. Uh, They do two songs. The first one is a slightly independence version of We Wish You a Merry Christmas. And the second one is a beautiful arrangement of Old Lang Syne. This will be our last podcast of 2022. So from everybody at the Indie Life podcast team, just want to say a huge thank you for listening to us throughout the year and for subscribing and for sharing. And please carry on doing that next year. Have a fabulous Christmas. Have a fantastic Hogmanay, And let's get cracking in 2023 and get this independence thing won. Thanks for listening. Bye now. We sing
9: for our independence.
1: We
8: sing for our independence.
9: We
1: sing for our independence. And it's coming home soon. We wish you a Merry Christmas. We wish you
11: a Merry Christmas. We wish you a Merry Christmas. And a Happy New Year. Good tidings we
8: bring. To you and your kin We wish you a Merry Christmas And a Happy New Year
10: We won't stop until we get it We We won't stop until we get it We won't stop until we get it And it's coming
8: home soon Good tidings we bring To you and your kin
1: And listening to Indie Jigsaw
4: Bits and Pieces.